We are in the midst of a, uh, what I think is a very, um, for me personally, a very uh, meaningful series where we're looking at the way that Jesus envisioned God. And the reason we're doing that is our hope as a church is that it would be Jesus' pictures of God that would shape our character as a church. Uh, every church has its own feel, its, its own character. Do you know what I mean by that? The kind of thing that's communicated even indirectly. And our hope at here is that Renaissance would be shaped most by the way that Jesus envisioned God. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at another parable, okay, a story where Jesus gave a picture of God to see what it looks like. And we're going to start, before looking at Jesus' picture of God, I want to show you a picture of my plumber. It's not like a literal picture. And this isn't a parable because it really happened. I had an emergency in my basement. And so I called my plumber to come over and fix it. I was in the kitchen, and as I heard the banging and hissing and clanging from downstairs, the sound of his swearing rose up like the dad in the Christmas story while he's wrestling with the boiler. And so I hustled downstairs to see if I could offer a hand, and with the, you know, the, the profanities hanging in the air like a mist, he turned to me and looked and said, uh, no, I'm fine. What do you do for a living? <laughs> I'm a preacher. And that, you know, I went upstairs and I got the coffee and I brought it back down. And as he sipped gratefully, he began to tell me about his sister who was very involved in the church. She sang in the choir. She served at the soup kitchen. She'd been very involved. She was serving with the deacons for some time. I smiled and I nodded. And then when he was done, he turned back to the boiler and I heard him mumble under his breath, I used to go to church. Why, why did you stop going? And his answer stuck with me. I didn't feel welcomed anymore after my divorce. I used to be really involved. I taught Sunday school. I helped out with communion. I loved holding the bread and the cup for people on Sunday mornings. But after my wife left me, they stopped asking me to be involved anymore. Uh, they said I was still welcomed, but I knew I was out of their inner circle. And you know, to deal with the pain I started drinking too much. One of the elders found out, and that solidified my identity as the black sheep. I wasn't in their circle anymore, and so I stopped going. His story, uh, aside from making me think about the church where I was a pastor at that time, it raised a very simple question for me, which is a question which I want us to think about this morning. It was a question of what is it that makes a man Welcome at a church. Uh, what is it that establishes a person's standing in the community of faith? Do you know what I mean by establishes their standing? What makes you on the inside instead of the outside? At uh, his church, it was plain. Uh, what makes a person uh, on the inside there is moral achievement. The man who keeps his marriage together is higher up than the man whose marriage falls apart. He told me, I didn't want my wife to leave me. I didn't want to... Uh, have to live through an affair where she found someone else. I didn't want to have to drink too much, but in his church, that's how it worked. Uh, now listen, uh, in every church, there will be patterns of what makes a person welcome and not. But what's critical for us this morning is to recognize that behind the character of a church like his is a very particular understanding of a deeper question. Not what makes me right at church, but what makes a person right with God. And in his church, the character was self-righteous. 
And their answer indirectly to him and to anyone who became a part of that community was what makes a person right with God is how well they have their lives together. It is moral achievement that makes you close to God. And if you fail, well, then God's welcome is not for you, not until you get yourself together. The question for us as a church, and I mean each week's message to be very practical, is what will make a person in this community, what will make a person here right with the others here? Will we have a position that is higher for some people and, and a space that's lower for others? Uh, this idea that God reserves his welcome for people who've got it right, it is not a new idea. When Jesus was around and teaching, he encountered this understanding of God in the communities that he spoke to. And so here's what we're going to do together this morning. We're going to look closely at a story which he told to a group that had got their understanding of God out of order. Uh, and we're going to see how he used that story to try to transform their self-understanding in a way that would result in a different way of being with others. And the reason we're going to do this is, is twofold. I want you and, and me, I want it for me too. I want each of us to have the right understanding of how it works with God so that individually and then secondly, all together, we have the right character. And, and I'm gonna just lay it out at the start, okay? When it comes to God, the way that a person is right with God, it's not a matter of your own moral achievement. Everything comes down to God's mercy. Uh, we'll see that in the story that Jesus told. Someone here, is ready to say yes to God's mercy for everybody but for herself. Um, some are too eager to say yes to God's mercy for themselves but not for others. Uh, in Jesus' story, we see both of those people and we see a correction of the distorted image of God, which if we will let it, listen now, if you personally will let it, it will actually change the way you carry yourself day in and day out. Uh, and not only for you personally, but that will also spill out into your other relationships and, and most importantly for me, into how we carry ourselves as a church. Uh, the story is told in Luke chapter 18. And we're gonna look at it bit by bit. And we're gonna start with Jesus' setting and the characters and we'll unfold his story and see what we can learn from it. In Luke chapter 18, uh, Jesus' story opens in verse 10 like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There we have the setting and the characters in Jesus' scene. Those characters definitely would have been well known to the first hearers of this story. When they heard Pharisee, they would have thought of a seriously religious man who cared deeply about knowing the path of God and walking on that path. And we're a bit at a disadvantage because we tend to think of a villain when we hear a Pharisee. But those first hearers, they would have heard, okay, this story has a religious man in it who cares a lot about knowing God and following God. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. The second character, the tax collector, well, we pretty much have the same attitude toward tax collectors, especially as April gets closer. I'm already thinking about tax time. But then even worse because tax collectors were villains. They were. They were turncoats. They were traitors amongst God's people who, with the threat of violence, exploited their own people for selfish gain. They were just bad guys. And in Jesus' story, we have a good guy and a bad guy who normally are very far apart. But did you hear the setting? These two 
both went to the temple to pray. And so in Jesus' story, he puts them side by side. And he's doing this because he wants us to look at them together so that we see the contrast between the two. And before we can fully grasp the difference, we have to understand the setting. So I want to dwell here for a minute. They are both at the temple, you heard it right, to pray. Uh, in Jesus' day, when this story was first told, there was one daily service of worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And it was the service for the offering of sin. At 6 a.m., so right as the sun was coming up, and then again at 3 p.m., each day, the same service was held there at the temple. Uh, try to use your imagination if you would. Let's uh, see ourselves there. It, the sun is rising. The sky is just beginning to become light. And you have left your home to go to the service of worship. And you're going there because you know this is where we go we go with a sense of our guilt so that we can ask God to forgive us. That's what this service is actually for. Uh, try this. Would you think for a moment of your own guilt? Uh, it's not a fun thing to do, and we, we have all kinds of creative ways of pushing down the mistakes that we personally have made. But for a moment, allow yourself to see the ones that you have come in uh, here with this morning. You lost your temper with someone you loved, and you said something you regret. You raised your voice. At work, you had an opportunity. It was unethical, but it was such a profit, and nobody knew, so you did it. Uh, you, you returned again to that secret habit that you've been really good at hiding, uh, the addiction that you know is wrong. You, you, you know the wrong uh, way, and you know the right way, and you've been going the wrong way, and you still go. Imagine for a moment that you've gone to the service of worship with that in your mind. That's where these two men are. As the sun is, is rising and the sky is turning pink, the sound of a silver trumpet, a single note, calls all the people there together to the, to the moment where they're meant to look at the altar. Uh, in the service of worship at this time, there would have been an altar out in front of the Holy of Holies. There'd be a priest behind it, and there on the stone would have been a lamb which had been slaughtered. Its blood spilled there for, very simply, for the washing away of the sins of God's people. Back in Moses' day, there was a rite described that this is how it would go. And so there the lamb is, and the, the trumpet sounds, the, the, the cymbals clasp, and now a priest is reading a psalm, and now everybody together in that whole place does the same thing. You do it, and the, and, and the Pharisee does it, and the tax collector does it. All of us imagine ourselves standing before God in this moment, and we lift our prayers to him. You pray sometimes? What does God look like to you in this moment? I really want you to try this uh, for yourself. With, not with someone else's failures in your mind. We've all got plenty of other people who've done ugly things to us, right? Set them uh, aside. You there before God and you're praying. What does he look like to you? Now, I'm not going to dare tell you, but I know for me what he's like and I want you to get it in your mind and here's why. Please understand this because what you see when you envision God in this moment it has everything to do with the way you understand yourself. It really does. It actually has to do with the way you interact with your spouse when, when she gets on your nerves or when he bothers you. It has to do with the way you respond to your children's failures and your neighbors. It has to do with the way you compose yourself as a single adult who's got a divorce in her background or in his background. All, all of this is rooted in how you think of God in this moment. So what does he look like to you? Uh, in this moment, in Jesus' story, he teaches us about what God looks like by showing us what is in the mind of both men, the Pharisee 
and the tax collector by giving us a picture of the way they pray. So let's look at the first character in Jesus' story so we can see in his prayer what God looks like to him. This is verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income. Is it hard not to gag as I read that a little bit? Because he just seems so full of himself, right? But let's give him as much as we can the benefit of the doubt. He is a man who does some good things. He, he fasts twice a week. Do you know what fasting is? It's the conscious decision to deprive yourself of food in order to focus your mind and your spirit more directly on God. Once a year, God's people were commanded in the law of Moses to fast. It was on the day of atonement. It was for them to get ready to receive God's forgiveness spiritually. If they deprived themselves of food, they'd be able to focus on God's grace and mercy more effectively. Isn't food a distraction? What? I'm distracted now thinking about food. But this man did it not once a year, but twice a day, which means 103, excuse me, twice a week, 103 times more than he had to. And, and as he prays, he points out that he gives a tenth of all of his income. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, in God's law, the people were commanded to set aside a tenth of, of a certain part of what came to them for God, to honor God as the giver of all good gifts and to support the mission and ministry of God's people. Without it, they couldn't do what they did. And so that's good. This man gives a tenth of everything. That's excellent. Nothing wrong with that. It would be good for all of us here to aim at that kind of spiritual discipline, both fasting and giving but there's still something more going on when he prays which makes us suspect that something is wrong with the way that he looks at God. Did you see what he did with everyone else there when he prayed? It says uh, that he stood by himself. And we're supposed to picture him too good for everyone else. But strictly speaking, he doesn't actually stand by himself before God. Did you notice that when he prays, he brings someone else there with him as he stands before God in his imagination? He brings the tax collector next to him. And he does this because this man has divided humanity into two groups, us and them. The ones who are good and the ones who are bad. His group and others, the way he describes those others, they're thieves, they're people who use their power and strength to exploit others and steal what doesn't belong to them. They're rogues, that means they have no regard for what's right, they don't follow the law at all. Adulterers, they have sexual immorality, that characterizes who they are. And when he stands before God, he doesn't stand alone, he stands there with someone beside him so that, this is the key, so that he has someone who compares to him and comes out lower than he does as he stands before God. That's what's ugly. You see it? What does God look like to this man? God to this man is like a cosmic admissions officer at the most prestigious university that's ever existed. Now, some of you have kids who are getting ready with their college applications. It's hitting a little close to home, right? But with the admissions officer, think about it. You put together a resume in which you boast about yourself. You're supposed to in which you list all of your achievements 
And that's what this guy does is he stands before God in prayer. He talks about how good he is. He talks about all of the bad things that he's not doing. And then he brings beside him a guy who's doing worse because when you want to get into school, what do you hope for? You know what you hope for? Especially if, if it's limited enrollment. You hope that a lot of the applicants have a worse GPA than you do, right? In fact, you want them to. In fact, listen, you're grateful for every person who applies to the same university who's not as good a candidate as you are because that's how it works in getting into a good school and that is exactly what God looks like to this man as he prays. He thanks God not for anything that God has done. He thanks God for his own achievements and I want you to understand this. In a way, he is also thankful that there is someone there with him who looks worse than he does. And there's a word for what this is. It's self-righteousness. And it's easy to see it in another person. In fact, it's so easy that right now, maybe you are picturing that self-righteous person that you know. Maybe they're here at the church, maybe not. And a part of you is saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. Right? Here's who this person is. In verse 9, before Luke reports Jesus' parable, he actually tells us who Jesus is telling this story to. In verse 9, uh, he also, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. The person who trusts in himself that he is righteous is the man who looks at his own achievements and says, God, I thank you that you've given me the faith that you've given me. I thank you that you've helped me believe the way that I believe. I thank you that I come to a church that has things in order. I thank you that I have not been like those people over there who are so messy and awful and they're so far away from you. God, I thank you that I am right with you because I have been so right. That's what a self-righteous person is. And a church can so easily develop into a self-righteous place where the man who comes in and whose marriage falls apart, whether it's said directly or not, he has a lower standing at that church than the people whose marriages are in order. The person who's obviously got life together, and I say obviously because the person who's obviously got life together has just learned to manage their image better than the one in whom the chaos and disarray has broken out. And I know you're not gonna shout amen when I say that, but it's true. The self-righteous community is the place where we trust that we've got it right, and that's why we're right. And, and, and in Jesus' description, listen, of the self-righteous person who, did you notice the second uh, part of the statement in verse 9? Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. It sounds like maybe those are two different things, but they're not. They go together like hand and glove. They go together like cause and effect. Because the moment you trust in yourself that you are righteous before God, it is a logical step that you also will regard others with contempt. And here's why. Because you will need others to be doing worse than you are in order to maintain your self-understanding that you're right with God because of how good you have been. To put it in terms of the admissions officer, you actually need people to have worse grades than you and you are thankful for them because they're what gets you in. And so the moment you regard yourself as righteous before God based on your own achievements, you need other people to be bad and you thank God for their failures. And the moment you thank, someone, thank God for someone else's misery, you hate them. That's a definition of contempt. To need someone else to fail. 
That's how God looks to the Pharisee. Now, Jesus paints this character first so that we're ready now to see the other man who also stands with him at that same service of worship where we've envisioned ourselves, who is there in the same crowd as the Pharisee with all of those people together. They're both there as the sun is rising enough now to see with clarity that there is a dead animal there on that altar whose blood has been spilled. And they're both lifting their voices to God in that same setting. And this one man has said, I'm so glad I'm not like him. And let's see how the second man prays. This is verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here is a man who does stand by himself, really and truly. He stands far off because when he looks at himself, he thinks, I surely am not worthy of even being in this place. And so he waits until everyone else has filled in at this service of forgiveness. And he comes in the back and he stands far off alone. When he begins to pray, he won't even look up at heaven. Instead, he keeps his eyes down low. His posture screams that he's ashamed of who he is. When he looks at himself truly and he thinks about the guilt that he's brought into that place, which is a part of his job, which is every day for him, he feels miserable about what he sees and his posture shows it. Jesus said he beats his breast. Only once in the entire New Testament is this phrase used in another place. It's at the crucifixion of Jesus. When the men and women who see that good man dying are so filled with grief that they pound their own hearts. And that's what this guy is doing. And maybe you personally this morning are miles away from where that guy is, but in a room with this many people in it, I am absolutely sure that there's more than one of you who when you look truly at yourself, you are just like that tax collector. The only word that he uses to identify himself is the singular word sinner. And I know that word has been has been messed up by the way religious communities have used it always to identify people who are not like they are. Do you know what I mean by that, right? Every church has its own pet sins that it loves to call out in others, disregarding the way that uh, each one in that community falls short of God's calling. And that's what sin is, by the way. It's a very simple image for a path that we're meant to walk on, that God says, here is the path that I want you to walk on, the path of selflessness. The path of saying no to greed The path of saying no to conspicuous consumption when the world is in need using everything you have for yourself. Here's the path that I call you to walk on. God says this. You walk this way, otherwise you're walking in sin. This man just says, that's who I am. I'm someone who's gone the wrong way. And so did you notice what he asks for? He asks for one thing only. Mercy. In Greek, a language which is much richer than English, there are many different words for mercy. Uh, the one that he uses here is very particular. It's a word, hilasthetai. Uh, the nearest equivalent in English is expiate. And you can understand why the translators didn't use that because when was the last time you said expiate, right? Expiate means to cover up or wash away. What he's asking for from God is that God would cover up his failures. What he's asking for there in that service of divine forgiveness is that God would somehow choose to wash away the stains 
that he bears upon his own conscience as he goes into that place. And the reason he asks for that is he knows without any question that his only hope is that he would receive mercy. That's the only thing he can hope in. And so that's how he prays. He has no illusions about his own ethical record. He knows that he's got it wrong. He understands the stains and all of the errors. And what he's asking for, you, you understand this, is unfair. It's not fair that he should ask for God to wash away or, or to cover up the, the truth about who he's been, but he asks for it anyway because he knows that's his only hope. And right here, please understand this, right here is the most profound and essential contrast between the tax collector and the Pharisee. It's not in their ethical performance, even though there's a great gulf between the two of them. That's not what makes them different. It's not even, listen to this, it's not even that one is arrogant and the other is humble. And that is true, and that really differentiates them. They're far apart in that regard. It's not the way that all of the religious community there would have looked at the two of them. That also makes them different. But the greatest difference between the two of them in Jesus' story, listen now, is where they are looking while they are praying. Think about it. The Pharisee is looking at someone who's doing worse than he is. The tax collector is looking at the lamb that has been slaughtered on the altar. And the tax collector looking at someone who's doing worse than he is says, oh, I, at least I'm better than he is, thank God. And the tax collector looks at the lamb and says, God, could the blood there please count for me? I know it's, it's wrong to ask, but would you let it cover this guilt? Would you let it wash away this sin? That's my only hope. That's what he asks for. And it is where they look that shows us how different their picture of God really is. And, I, and this is what we must see. And we must see it, listen now, for every man and every woman who in this place has come into this service of worship and thinks deep down inside, if God's grace and forgiveness and welcome is for other people, great, but I know it's not for me. And I'm telling you, even last week at our staff meeting, someone on our staff reported that after last week's message, someone told them that. It was a great uh, message, but I still can't believe that God would welcome me. That happened last week here. And so I know there's at least one of you or part of you that says that. And so seeing God as Jesus pictured him is meant to change that. But here, this is the other thing. And I, I feel so responsible for this as the pastor at Renaissance Church. And I love being your lead pastor. But here, I feel responsible for the character that our church develops. And so I put it before us as a church. How are we going to envision God? And that's a real question. What are people going to experience when they come into this place? Are they going to experience a community where if you have lived through a divorce and your marriage fell apart and you're drinking too much to deal with it, are you going to be looked down on here? Are you going to be uninvited? Are you going to be out of the inner circle? Uh, and on the other hand, if you're doing great and your marriage looks really, really good and your kids are excelling and you know the Bible inside and out and you're a great uh, leader of a community group or a small group or something great like that, are you going to be higher up than other people or not? That's not just a question about how we behave. It's a question about what does God look like to us? And what I want is for us to be a community that is shaped by how Jesus pictured God. 
And it's in Jesus' assessment of these two men where it comes crystal clear. After picturing the contrast, in verse 14, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, who is a thief and a rogue and probably an adulterer too, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of Jesus. The tax collector left that service of worship and went back home justified. And that is a word which means right with. And whether you know it or not, the roots of all of the misery in your own life, your insecurity, your tendency to compare yourself to others, the way that you're short with people that you wish you loved better, the way that you're at odds with your own self when you look in the mirror, the roots of all of that are exactly the same. When you are out of relationship with God in the way that you were meant to be, everything else in your life becomes miserable. And here Jesus says, the man who comes to God like the tax collector and simply says, have mercy on me, a sinner, that man goes home right with God. The woman who looks at herself and says, oh, my only hope is mercy, she leaves and goes home right with God. And that means she has peace in her heart with him. She can know deep down inside that he regards her as a beloved daughter who is ready completely to forget of all of her miseries and to delight in being in her presence. She goes home at peace and with a hopeful view of the future. And she doesn't care about all that other stuff anymore. She's joyful all day because she knows that God loves her. <laughs> That's Jesus' assessment. And then the other man who does everything right, he really does, and he doesn't do any of the bad things. He goes home thinking that he's right with God. He is wrong with God. He goes down that path one step at a time away from the worship service and every step takes him further away from God. He thinks that he's right with God, but he's not, which means he's always gonna be cranky. He's always gonna be miserable to be around. He's always gonna be judgmental of other people. He's always forever going to be looking down on others who are doing worse than he is. And he's gonna be glad for it, but he is miles away from God because he just doesn't know what God really looks like. And this is the root of Jesus' brilliant and ominous promise, brilliant. All who humble themselves will be lifted by God, which means if you are in the shadows of regret and shame and you're willing to admit it before God, you can count on it. God will reach his gracious hand down into the misery of your failures and he'll grasp a hold of you and lift you up. And you will be exalted. That means lifted up before God and set on firm ground and he'll look at you and love you. But, and this is so ominous, all who exalt themselves, everyone who trusts in her own righteousness or is, an own, is his own righteousness, he will have the hand of God coming down against him to push him down. The question is, how are we going to look at God? There is no question about who God is. That's settled. God has decided to be a God of mercy and there's nothing that you can do about it. The question is, how are you going to look at him? And that question will determine everything. So here, I want to put before you three very definite implications of Jesus' picture for you personally and for us as a church. And I want them to be as plain as possible because this story is not meant to be something that we just think about while we're together here on Sunday, but rather it's meant to be something which changes us so that we are different when we're together and when we're out in the world, which God loves. And so here, let's take a moment for these three implications. The first 
is a, a really a, a summary of what we learn when we look at the story, and it's this. Mercy makes us right with God. That's the first uh, takeaway, and it's, it's critical. It's critical. It's cri- you heard that? <laughs> it's not our moral achievement that makes us right with God. It's not. It's not believing the right things, holding the right doctrine. It's not going to the right church or behaving in the right way that makes us right with God. All of those things matter, of course. But the moment that any one of them begins to, in our own minds, become the reason that we think we're right with God, we are wrong with God. Because the only thing that makes us right with God is God's mercy. And thank God for that. And that's the truth. And now listen, if you take that deep enough into your heart, which you should, only his mercy makes us right. Only his mercy makes us right. If you take that deep enough into your heart, then you're ready for the second fact from this story, which is mercy makes us right with one another. And I'm telling you, this right here, this could transform the whole world if if men and women over this globe got this right. I'm serious. It's not an overstatement to say it. Every time we want to go on believing that the other person's performance is what's going to make them right with us, whether it's on the global stage or at the checkout line in the supermarket, the moment we will not let mercy make us right with other people, we will be wrong with people all around. You know what I mean by that? Right? The the teller is mean and short with us. And we can respond either in mercy or not. And if we don't respond in mercy, we'll be angry that day because we weren't treated right. But if mercy is the thing which governs our way with that teller, then we'll be able to say in our hearts, maybe, maybe her child is sick. Maybe she's got a terminal disease herself. And then we can be gracious instead of self-righteous. And if we'll do that, it will transform the way that we interact with her. And I want us to take this into our hearts because the truth is, mercy is what will make us right in this community with one another. And it will make it so the plumber whose marriage failed because his wife left him and who drinks too much to to deal with it will not become a second-class citizen at Renaissance Church. Instead, he'll be on the same footing as all of us because if if mercy is what makes me right, it makes him right too. And that means the ground we stand stand on is not determined by our performance behind us, but rather the fact that before the cross, we all equally need God's mercy and receive it. Huh? I like that. Huh? And then third... If we don't get this last one, then none of this counts. And this is the third one. Mercy makes us right with ourselves. And I would never, ever say this first. I would never tell you, oh, just believe in yourself and then everything will be fine. Accept yourself as you are and then all of your troubles will go away. You know what? That's nonsense. But I can and I must say this because of that first thing, which is that you personally you personally are invited to have a merciful outlook on you, the man, the woman that you see in the mirror. I know that you know yourself better than me or anyone else does, but you do not know yourself better than Jesus does. And this story tells us that you are invited to have mercy on yourself. Please listen to me. It's the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. I want you to picture yourself at that service of worship. And I want you to look at that lamb there on the altar and what I want you to know is that when Jesus told this story, he already knew what was going to come at the end of his life, which is that his blood would be spilled and that he would become the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And he knew, he knew every stain, every mistake, every sin of yours. And when he went to the cross, it was for you. And you are invited, and I would even say, with, with whatever power that I can muster as the person speaking up here this morning, I would say that you are commanded to accept God's mercy for you and have mercy on yourself so that you can become someone who has mercy on others. Until you have mercy on you, you'll never get very far in being merciful toward others. So in Jesus' name, accept his mercy for you and have mercy on yourself so that you can become a part of this community which is shaped by Jesus' vision of God and have mercy for everyone who comes in here so that Renaissance Church can become a community that is characterized by how unbelievably merciful it is. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the chance to dwell together with these friends, with these brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, with these strangers uh, this morning on this story uh, that Jesus told to help us understand what you're like. God, we need you to forgive us. We know that our only hope is that the blood of the Lamb will somehow cleanse us. And we are astounded when we think of the truth that you in Christ decided to give your own life for us. Help us accept that and, and then help us see ourselves in light of that mercy. Forgive us when we've looked down on others. Uh, correct us gently, but help us become a church which is uncommonly merciful. God, as we sing together now, would you please invite us in our hearts to come to that altar in which you gave yourself and accept your grace and love for us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.